So do you want to summarize where we were after last time we got stuck, essentially? Sure, yeah. So we were talking about push-ups, and we came up with a very intuitive... Or we 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 did talked about what our intuitions were for how the physics were going to work out for a push-up, meaning um, it's going to depend on your angle and it's going to vary somewhere between like uh, your full weight and half of your weight, I think is kind of where we landed. I think it was none of your weight, oh, half of your weight, and then all of your weight. Right, right. Yeah. And then we went through and we did some physics. We wrote out some equations, looked at some torques, and we both fell into the, the, the trap that the angle disappeared. We had a cosine of the angle and another cosine of the angle, and it divided from both sides. And okay, well, and then that just didn't match with any of our intuitions. So we had to kind of stop and scratch our heads and really think about it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, yeah, we started with just the conceptual explanation of how much weight you're lifting when you do a push-up and then try to get into some force diagrams and torque diagrams and writing everything out we expected something to have angle dependence and come out you know like we were conceptually explaining but when, when we wrote it out both of us hit the same issue that the angle just drops out of the equation completely and it doesn't depend on the angle at least the way that we set it up so we were stuck we didn't know why so yeah what, uh, what headway did you make, Zach? Right. So, uh, yeah, the only conclusion I think we could have drawn is that our model was, was wrong. Right. So I was trying to figure out what's, what's wrong about our model. And I did some few things. And I think I came upon the main thing that we missed just recently, actually. And then I'll talk about how to kind of expand that to be a little more right. Mm-hmm. So the main thing that we missed is we were treating... We're treating this like we had uh, two concentric circles, let's say. And the inner concentric circle would be like where our body mass or our center of mass location is as a function of angle, you know, as we rotate around our our toes. Mm-hmm. And the outer circle would be like either your head or your shoulders or some, some part of you. Mm-hmm. And, and we were looking at how, you know, if you change your angle, both of those change by some amount but the pivot arm the distance on let's say the x-axis stays constant or the ratio of the two of the center of mass pivot arm and the moment arm lever arm Mm -hmm. i forget what the right term is and your shoulder let's say the ratio of those two things is constant and if you think about it for two concentric circles that's exactly the case and so the angle would drop out Right, and so what I what I realized after I did a lot of push-ups, I uh, <laughs> I looked at videos of push-ups. <laughs> I did the same thing. <laughs> and I, I finally, I think I, I realized the biggest error that we were making is that that little model that I just discussed. There's a, a distance that's changing there that shouldn't be changing. The distance between your toes and your hands, like where your toes are touching the ground and your hands are touching the ground. That distance never changes throughout mm-hmm. a push-up. Right. And our model treated it as though it was. So the second you fix that distance, now you're only talking about the center of mass moving on a circle and the other distance just constant. Mm-hmm. The other pivot arm just stays the same. So then, therefore, you will get an angle dependence. Right. And I sent you this link to a Desmos plot Okay. that... Shows you the so the first one. Uh, I don't know if it's drawn for you or not. The first NH, yeah, it, it should be orange when you look at the plot. Mm-hmm. That's right now the parameters are set up for my uh 
body. But uh, that looks like, okay, great. We have like a cosine function and it's kind of doing the thing that we want. The only <laughs> issue still here is when you go negative distance. So what this is actually plotting, let me let me try and be a little more precise. Like if you, while doing a push-up, if you drew a horizontal line straight out from your shoulders, okay, the angle between your body and that line is the, is the angle this is talking about. So when that angle is zero, you're flat. Oh, okay. So that would be the most weight. Right. So it's it's a horizontal line, like from like parallel to the floor, yeah. and it's just at shoulder height when you're when you're flat on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. The the zero angle would just be meaning that yeah, you have your body is parallel to the ground. Got it. Okay. So that's the point where we said, okay, that should be uh, roughly half the weight. Well, yeah, okay, that's only true if your center of mass is exactly in the center of your body, but it's slightly off from that. And that mm-hmm. also doesn't take into account your head necessarily. But yes, the point is that should be the, the max, or well, it shouldn't necessarily be the max, but that's, that's the highest of the positive angles. So as you increase your angle, that means you're pushing up and it should go down, okay. which is what you see yeah, here. Yeah, so the force in the starts at plot. its highest value and decreases. Right. But we both said, as you go into negative angles, meaning mm-hmm. your shoulders are now closer to the ground than your heels are, mm-hmm. it should be more weight. And this function doesn't capture that. It says it should be less weight. Now I see it. It kind of goes up a little bit. But no. then it, it like there's there's a peak in some negative value, right? Wait, no, I think you're looking at the red one. Oh, then I don't see an orange one. I, I you, got, the, you got to click on it. It's one at the at the the first one up at the top. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I okay. see it now. Right. Okay. So that function doesn't capture it. There we go. Okay. So. <laughs> Sorry, I spoiled. I spoiled where, where we're headed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Was well, good segue into it. So <laughs> the reason that doesn't capture it is because this model that we're talking about doesn't include your foot. Um, okay. It, it assumes that like you're you have just nubs at the end of your feet. Okay. So when you include your foot into this, what happens is as you do a push up, and I'm assuming that the angle between your foot and your leg always stays 90 degrees. Maybe that's Mm -hmm. a slightly bad assumption, but that's what I started off working with. As you do your push up, your feet actually go, go back. You know, your heels will go behind your toes. Mm -hmm. Very slightly, but it, it does happen. Yeah. And actually, you know, like if you imagine like, you know, standing up, you're, you're entirely behind, you know, it's the length of your foot is the max distance it could be behind your toes. So it goes from nothing, no, you know, being at the same point as your toes when your body is horizontal all the way to the length of your foot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the range there. And so, but that, that backwards motion pushes your center of mass just slightly closer to your feet. Mm-hmm. Or if you go down lower, you go to negative angles, your shoulders are closer to the ground, it pushes your center of mass further from your feet now, because it's now, now your heels are sticking past your toes. Right. And the closer your center of mass is to your hands, the more weight on your hands. Right. So when you include your foot, then you get this function in red, which is the next one. Notice it crosses the zero axis at the same point. Mm -hmm. But as you go deeper, it will then uh, still increase your weight up to a certain point. Now, I think that point is is probably due to the limitations of the the exercise. Meaning, you know, eventually your shoulders are going to hit the ground, right? And also, like as you do a push up, your at some point the angle is going to 
the way that you're pushing with your hands are, is going to change. Hmm. Okay. So this is the best I came up with. It's not perfect, but I think it's closer than what we got. And it, it describes a lot more of the, the intu- intuition that you, you and I came up with. Why, why is there a peak at like negative point? I'll say negative point two, maybe negative point two five, but then it, it gets less when the angle gets more negative from there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, 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 w- I would have thought it would have like monotonically increased. gotten more and more as you decrease the angle. Right. Um, why, why does it peak and then go back down? Yeah. I, so that I'm not a hundred percent sure on. I think it, like I, I was trying to say, I think it might be a, a function of the physical parameters of the of your body like because this is taking into account your foot your body length your Mm -hmm. shoulder the or the the distance between your hand to toe yeah let's see so like w is your weight l is the distance between your hand and your toe m is your your, the distance between your heel to your center of mass f is the length of your foot Mm. b is the distance between your heel and your shoulder i don't see b anywhere in here I mean, I see it defined as a variable, but it's not in either of the equation. No, it's not actually used. Oh, it's uh, that purple line or something. Yeah, it's used for that purple one, um, mm-hmm. which we can get into. But it, it, I don't know if anyone would want to listen to us talk about it because it's more of just a function to check things. Mm-hmm. So uh, you showed me kind of this a while ago, like not not all fleshed out, not in Desmos, not not the f- complete equations, but just a sketch. And you, you uh-huh. did kind of explain where you were headed, where you were heading. And just before we started recording, I drew four quick sketches. One with your like push up, a horizontal push up on the ground, like a normal push up, and then with with your head close to the ground, and then extend your arms up, right? Like the just a normal push up, low mm-hmm. and then high. So that's two different drawings. And the center of mass when you're low, I said was close to your hands. And then when you do a push-up, what you're, you're exactly right in that the distance between your feet and your hands don't move, but the amount of your body overhanging past your hands, like moving away from your feet, you reach your hands and then keep going. The amount of your body that's past your fingertips is the is more when you're at the lowest point, right? Than when you extend your arms and go up, and then that that means the center of Gravity is closer to your hands when you're at the lowest point than when you do when you push up at the highest point in your push up. Right. Ah. Uh, so, sorry. We, I think I think I know where you're going with this. Maybe. I, I guess my question is: Do we even need the feet? Like, it, can we just say that this is how it works, and that's why when you're when you're low, you're holding more weight than when you're high in the push up? Well, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's 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 that first function the orange function there that's the one that's just saying yeah it's going to increase or it's going to be a function of angle essentially is mm-hmm. what that's saying and that that's because exactly what you're saying like you know your center of mass is getting closer to your hands you're having more because you're having more mass hang over past your hands like if mm-hmm. you if you watch a video of someone doing a push-up you'll see when they're in the up position uh usually you start with your hands uh directly beneath your shoulders but as you go to the down position, your shoulders now extend beyond your hands. Right. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. I saw that. Yeah. If anyone wants to see this, a good quick way to see a bunch of people doing push-ups is to go to Google Images and search push-up and then change the type to animated. And then you see a bunch of GIFs of people doing push-ups. Nice. That was how I <laughs> took a quick survey of what it looks like. So my other two drawings were the, the what I learned was a decline push-up with your feet higher than the rest of your body. Okay. And when you're in the low position, again, your center of mass is close I guess it doesn't make a difference. And that was the problem, right? It's the same. Basically, it doesn't matter if your feet are higher than your body. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of looking at your question here. You know, I think we're going along the same lines with, mm-hmm. okay, why does this peak at some negative angle? This plot for my body is saying it's around negative 12 degrees. Is the peak weight or the, 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 the peak of the, the amount of mass that'll be on my hands or force i should say not mass Mm -hmm. so the reason it goes down from there i think is because if 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 you imagine and you you can just take away the feet for this if you want why would it go decrease on the other side is if you don't have feet right you just have uh stumps again Mm -hmm. then as or you do it with your knees i guess as you pass, let's say you could pass through the ground somehow. I don't know. Uh, you look at you're doing it on a mirror or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's going to that your center of mass is going to start moving closer to your feet again as you go past that point. Okay. So because your center of mass is moving closer to your feet, it's going to decrease the amount of force on your hands. So actually, uh, going negative in terms of this very limited sense where your toe, toes or your your knees are acting as like a pivot point and you can only rotate about that point, mm-hmm. then it, 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 it makes sense to me that it will lessen because uh, you're now taking, uh, you're now redistributing your mass so it's closer to your feet. Okay. Does that make sense? I think so. Like just imagine, you know, doing a, a push-up on uh, with a mirror. It should, the mirror should pretty much reflect, you know, what's go what what's happening mm-hmm. as you go into the negative space. And so it's, it should be exactly about the ground that you're getting this shift. And how come we don't see that when we do like a, a 90 degree, when it angles 90 degrees, I guess negative 90 degrees, we're not lifting our entire body weight. That's a good point. Because isn't that, that's what we expected to see. It's like it kept, it would keep getting harder and harder as we went closer and closer to 90 degrees until we were lifting, like we were doing a full body push up, like a handstand push up. Yeah, I think, I think it's just a, a limit of the model because this is assuming, I think, I think the issue is that it's assuming that your, your hands and toes are on the same flat surface. I see. Okay, so we're not capturing the, the decline push-up with this. Right. No. This is just the, your standard, I'm on flat ground push-up. Uh, okay. Okay. Then then I believe this. Now I believe this. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I think, yeah, if you're doing, you know, your decline push-up, there's, there's, you do have a constant distance that's fixed in there. That's just not captured in, in this. My main right. goal was to figure out where the hell the angle went. <laughs> right. Right. I see. Got it. And in terms of like uh, accuracy of this model, uh, so I, I took a more precise push-up force plot, but essentially I start out and it's around 700-ish newtons. Remember, I weigh 1,000 newtons. Mm-hmm. And then when I go down to my lower position, it goes to around 750 roughly. And I don't know what angle. I, it was just me by myself. I didn't have another person there to measure how far I actually went down. 
Mm-hmm. But so, okay, so 700 when I'm at my upper position, and then this is saying 750 when I'm at my lower one. So if you just assume that I can do a good push-up, and I don't know that I can, this mo- this little model's predicting at my lower end of my push-up, or at my the bottom position, I'll be doing like 810 newtons of force. So it's it's not exact, but it's close. Yeah. And it's 5% off. And then, yeah, that's what this other plot here is for, is to figure out numerically what the angle would be for my upper body position when I'm in the upper position. Mm-hmm. And I think, let's see, that says A. Okay. And then, so, yeah, if I go to, uh, I'm looking what it's saying for my upper body position, 750 newtons. And I was measuring about 700. So I guess there's a delta somewhere of around 50 newtons. But yeah, so not cool. awful. It kind of agrees with, with calculation to some amount. Yeah. And I, th- I think maybe a short answer for the, the decline push-up with your feet higher is imagine like being horizontal, like with your arms on the ground and your feet on some bench or something like that, and then raise your feet higher and higher. Your body starts to adjust by having your center of mass get closer and closer to where your hands touch the ground. Right. And then imagine you have a force on your feet and a force on your hands and your center of mass is at your hands, like like at that location, if that makes sense. Like imagine a board with two upward forces and the weight somewhere in the middle of it and then slide that weight towards one of the forces, the place where the force is acting upwards. What's going to happen is that force that you're sliding the center of gravity towards approaches the weight itself. And the other force tends to zero as you do that. Right. Ignore push-ups just to horizontal board and just slide the center of gravity towards one of the places where the force is acting. That force is going to be equal to the weight exactly when the two are on top of each other. So I think what we're saying here is that as you do a push-up or you're doing a decline push-up, your center of gravity approaches the place where your hands are holding you up. And as you approach that, the force of your hands increases until it's matching your weight exactly when your center of gravity is above your hands, as you would expect. Then you're doing a handstand push-up. Your center of gravity is directly over your hands. Right, yeah. I, I, so, so yeah, that's essentially what it boils down to mm-hmm. is it's how close is your center of, of mass to your hands. Right, right. And the, I think the original question was like, what percentage of your body weight are you doing when you do a, a, a push-up? Right. And really based on kind of this model that I've created, it really depends on your technique. <laughs> you mm-hmm. can vary it quite a bit by changing right. your arms location. Right. Or the, you know, the distance between your toes and your hands. Or, you know, or if you're doing the decline push-up, you know, that'll just instantly put you into a, a larger force amount you know mm-hmm. so i guess the thing that i learned is just if you move if you move your hands when you're doing push-up further away from your feet you'll be doing less weight yeah that's right i mean obviously your body there's there's limits to that like if you stretch your hands out in front of your head you're not going to be able to do a good push-up <laughs> right right well you'll yeah. be lifting less weight still it's mm-hmm. just you're using a different muscle group yeah and we're not getting into anything like that like yeah. the, the physiology of the body <laughs> yeah so i was thinking about this when i was working out i was 
doing like a chest day and the warm up was push ups. And I was like, well, why am I warming up with push ups? That seems excessive if I'm going to be like bench pressing not, not much weight, 40 pounds. I'm like, well, my push ups are much more than 40 pounds as a warm up. Like, why don't I warm up with like five pound lifts? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I guess. You know, rough estimate for me is it's it's somewhere between seventy and eighty percent of my body weight, mm-hmm. which is you know more a, than forty pounds. Yeah, yeah, it's quite <laughs> quite a lot more. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I mean, I guess I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing when I'm lifting weights in like a bench press, like laying flat on my back and pushing weights up. In my head, it's the same thing as a push up, but I guess probably not. Yeah, maybe, I, I feel like it's similar. Yeah, physiology. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One thing I thought was interesting about this problem, this question is, you know, I, I did, I didn't spend a whole lot of time, but I did a fair amount of Googling trying to just yeah, find the too. answer. Uh-huh. Or like, like I, I looked, um, you know, through some uh, journal databases at the university mm-hmm. and like it did not, nothing super easy to find at least came up that was like, yeah. here's the physics of a push up. So right. like, exactly. Yeah. Same, same thing. And I even found like a physics stack exchange thread. Someone asked the exact same question. There was no satisfactory answer that I saw. So let's publish. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I want to do a, a more detailed measurement one day, but not today. Okay. Well, I feel like we've covered push-ups pretty well. Hopefully people have a decent understanding. It matters your angle and it matter- the real important thing is how close is your center of mass to your hands. Yep. There it is. Cool. So what's, uh, what's up for today? What's the next week's thought? The question is asking basically, I mean, in so many words, this person was asking why is geosynchronous orbit where it is like what not why is it that number but like why is it a specific place like why can't you put a geosynchronous satellite at any altitude above earth like why does it have to be an exact altitude Ah, okay so do you know why well i think before i get i take a guess uh maybe we should talk about what a geosynchronous orbit is (laughs) sure lay the foundation yeah i can explain it is just the earth spins around once every about 24 hours so a satellite that's geosynchronous means that it's also going around once every 24 hours. So it, it's always fixed above a particular point on the Earth and it just spins around or orbits around the Earth. And yeah, if you work out the physics, there's a particular distance from Earth that these satellites have to be in order to do that. Right. So it's like if I'm in Santa Barbara and there's a geosynchronous satellite above me, mm-hmm. I can always look up to that same spot in the sky and that'll be there, you know, whether it's noon or midnight or any time in between. Right. Right. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So I guess a few points before we get into the answering of the question is it's interesting to think about where, like what place on earth are these things directly above? Like where on earth, if you went from the center of the earth to the surface of the earth and then to the satellite, like where would those, where would that be a complete straight line? Do you get what I'm asking? From uh, sorry, I, what I heard was two points, which is always a straight line. So what am I missing? No, no. Okay. <clears throat> so center of the, there's three points: center of okay. the Earth, yep. a point on the surface of the Earth, which okay. I'm asking where are those points, and then the satellite itself. So if you went from the center of the Earth to the North Pole, 
and then the International Space Station, that's definitely not a straight line, right? Unless the the space station happens to be passing over the North Pole at that moment. Right, right. Ah, so it's like kind of where can we have these geosynchronous, mm-hmm. like can we have it at any um, latitude or... Right, or- like you said, Santa Barbara. Like is there a geosynchronous satellite that goes directly above Santa Barbara at all times? Like I mean, if you looked straight up. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't personally know, but I don't... <laughs> I, I don't think so. Yeah, I, I. So I'm imagining in my mind, at least for a given height, it, it's equatorial. Maybe it could be. Yeah, I, I want to say it's. Yeah, okay. Because the other orbit I'm imagining that doesn't exist. So uh, I think it's an equatorial plane, right? It's got to be yep. like at the equator level. Exactly. Yeah. So all the, all the geosynchronous satellites are geosynchronous over places on the equator. And so in Santa Barbara, you look up in the sky and there are geosynchronous satellites. I mean, I shouldn't say directly up in the sky, but you look somewhere you point your satellite dishes, like all the television satellite dishes are pointed at geosynchronous satellites because they have to always point towards the source. You know, it's not like the dish on your roof is rotating them to like match where the place is of the satellite that gets the television signal. So your dish always points towards essentially geosynchronous satellites that are over the equator. Right. Okay. So it's like, I can imagine a situation, I don't think this exists, but I can imagine a situation then where if I was on like the North Pole, let's say, or I don't know if the North Pole exists anymore. So I'm going to say the South Pole because that's a landmass. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. The South Pole, you might not be able to see it if it was like, you know, I'm just going to pose a stupid satellite if it was, you know, six feet off the ground. Mm-hmm. Like you wouldn't, you couldn't have a line of sight to that satellite. But if it's really, really far away, like moon distance, right? Mm-hmm. You could see the moon from, I think, from the South Pole, from anywhere. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah you can see over so, the curvature of the Earth. Like yeah. you can see over so, the horizon. So, but I, so I think I, I, I'm guessing then that these satellites are high enough that you can see it over the horizon at yes. any, any point on Earth. That's right. Yeah. And you can see about, about how high over the horizon they are if you look at satellite dishes on your TV. And like if you ever set one up, it tells you like where to point the satellite and like you can, it like tests for signal strength and you adjust it. But it's, if you're in Santa Barbara, which direction do you think it points? You probably know. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it's south. Yeah. Yeah, it's always pointed some general south the direction. Yeah. And then if you're like in Australia or South Africa or something, you're going to be pointing those satellite dishes north to capture those the signals from the geosynchronous satellites. Right. And so here here's the reason I said it's got to be over the equator. Mm-hmm. Is I imagined it being over like let, let's say it is over uh somewhere in in Canada mm-hmm. like at all times. The orbit that that would be making is is if you drew a line from the well, let's go to the geosynchronous one. If you draw mm-hmm. a line from the center of the Earth to the satellite and you sweep that out over its orbit, it forms like a, a disk. Right. But if you did it with like a place over Canada and you connected the line between the center of Earth to the satellite that's over Canada and you spun it around, it would form a, a cone. Right. Which exactly. That that doesn't work you can't orbit around (laughs) yeah you have to orbit around the center of mass right yeah so uh, yeah a circle that's like if you sweep out the line makes a cone we don't get orbits like that like you don't get little halo orbits around yeah yeah that's a good way of of putting it yeah it's not a little halo yeah definitely 
because because the the center there's no no object you have to be going around the center of something mm-hmm. you know the center mass right so. and you could make that disc you know you could have it over Santa Barbara at one point or over Canada at one point but that sweeping out of the disc for the geosynchronous orbit over Canada or or somewhere not on the equator it it would be at an angle so like it'd be like taking a a sword slice through the globe at like an angle not through the center of like not through the equator right yep yeah okay all right so okay geosynchronous is a satellite that is constantly over some point on the equator at all times mm-hmm. yep so if you were standing at one of those places and looked up you would there would be a satellite there all the time all right okay so the question is now uh that satellite has to be at a particular height yeah so why can't we have well i won't use your six foot <laughs> analogy but in theory if something like the moon or mars where there's no atmosphere you know or some barren planet or something we could put something at six feet and have it orbit the planet very smooth planet yeah exactly no mountains nothing so why can't it be at six feet or why can't we have a geostationary geosynchronous orbit like at the altitude of the space station which is not very high and these these geosynchronous ones let me get the number the guy asked the question like thirty five thousand kilometers so we're talking like tens of thousands of kilometers whereas the space station i think is just like 100 kilometers couple hundred kilometers not very far so okay let me let me look something up real quick because i was i was reading all about orbits because i thought we were talking just general <laughs> orbits general. Uh, well, we might actually so a part where my explanation might fall flat is when i get into like general orbits so i might need your help there so i think this is a a well i'm looking on wikipedia and it's saying it is a a Oh, well, okay. It has its own classification. I was looking at like all the the orbits. There's like low Earth orbit, which I think Mm. is what the ISS is. Yeah. And then there's, it says medium Earth orbit, but it also says Malnia orbit. Maybe those are two different. I don't know. Um, And then, yeah, geostationary actually is its own class of orbit mm-hmm. and then above geostationary is the higher orbit so yeah, yeah it, it's well, saying we, roughly, we should say just before we get into this okay. we should say that you know you can orbit at any height it's just it's not going to be geostationary that's the problem right. like you can be in a circular orbit at any radial distance from the earth right yeah right. i mean if you're if you're if you go to you get rid of all the air you go to the mount everest and mm-hmm. you you shoot a, a ball fast enough off of it it'll it can orbit at that height, you know, right. 10, 10 feet above Mount Everest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or you can go even, you know, super far where you have things like uh, Halley's Comet, which goes like ridiculously far away and comes right. back. Right. But those are, that's an elliptical one. And I'm trying to stick to just circular, oh, right. which we might need to get into elliptical in a bit. But yeah, circular orbits, you can get a circular orbit anywhere. Yeah. So Wikipedia is saying um, geostationary orbits are 42,000 kilometers on the nose from the center of the Earth. Okay. Um, 35,789 from the surface. Okay, cool. So altitude of like 35,000 kilometers, right. 35 megameters. So why is it that height? And I, I should, we can kind of reframe the question a little bit and just throw out a fact and talk about why this is true, that for any given radial size of an, a, a circular orbit the or any orbit, the period is uniquely defined for that circular orbit. Do you get what I'm saying? Like the, yeah. The second you know the radius of your orbit, you know the period. You know how long it takes to go around the orbit once. Right. Yeah. Like th- those are one to one pairings, like unique. One fixes the other one. 
Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that, that that's kind of the whole crux of the, mm-hmm. the problem there is, you yeah. know, if, if you need it to be, you know, you, you need it, the speed to match that of the earth. Mm-hmm. And so since you have this one to one pairing, the, the, you need the speed of the satellite, the angular speed to match the angular speed of the earth. So yeah, mm-hmm. if you have this one to one pairing, then your, your height is just immediately fixed. Right to you know uh, forty two th- or thirty five thousand uh, kilometers. Mm-hmm. That just happens to be the distance that gets you a twenty four hour period. Right. So I guess we can say that, but I think the question really is okay. Maybe a little deeper than that would be why is it why is it this one to one pairing? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So my attempt at an explanation was to use an analogy of of, of a ball on a string. Okay, and that's the satellite. And ignore gravity, but just imagine the tension in the string. So imagine you're spinning around, like, I don't know, in the middle of an ice skating rink or something. You know, just you have a huge open field and you're free to just spin with a ball on the end of a string. Mm-hmm. My question to you is, so the key the key point of all of this is we're, we're fixing the amount of time it takes for you to spin around once. Probably not 24 hours because that would take a really long time to spin around. But just any any sort of comparison, just remember we are taking the same amount of time to go around the circle. Right. So is the string at a higher tension when it's close to you or is the string at a higher tension when the ball is far away from you? Like when the string is short or when the string is long as you spin around in a circle? I don't have an intuition for this and I don't have the... Math off the top of my head. Um, <laughs> you're allowed. You're allowed a free body diagram. <laughs> All right. So, well, okay. Here's what I'm. I'm in kind of intuiting. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, okay. A little bit of algebra. So, okay. The thing I was missing. You just gave me the warning, and I just I heard it. I absorbed yep. it, and it immediately yep. fell out of my head until yep. I like realized again. Okay. So the, the thing that that's important between these two radii that we're talking about for this ball on a string is is it's taking the same time to go around for both of these balls. So then, exactly. Well, okay. Once you know that, then it's okay. Which one has more tension in the string? And I, I think it's the longer one. Okay. Um, How did you arrive at that? Okay. Well, I remembered I alpha. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, I alpha. So yeah, the moment of inertia times the rotational acceleration is equal to force. Right? Mm. Torque. 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 Okay. Ooh. Yeah, okay. Um, well, I can tell you right now that that's incorrect because the thing is rotating at a constant angular velocity, so alpha would be zero. Ah, uh, right, right, right. Okay. I'm trying to remember what angular acceleration... Okay, wait, no, but okay, that's zero. Damn it. What is the equation for centripetal force? <laughs> MV squared over R? Yep, that'll work. Okay, all right. Well, yeah, okay. So then, then it's the exact opposite of what I said. <laughs> but I'm not... Okay, I'm not seeing it intuitively in my head or through a, a, a little picture. So what, what am I missing? Help me out. Well, if you went down the V squared over R route, you'd get in a bit of a pickle with the V changing as you change the distance. Because it, if you went around a small circle in 20, or, you know, let, let's use a realistic number. Like say it takes you one second to spin around in a circle. Okay. If the circle's small, the ball on the end of the string is going to be moving pretty fast to get around that circle. Sorry, it's going to be moving 
slow. pretty slow to get around that circle in one second. Right, because the, cir- the, the, the circumference is really small, so it doesn't yeah. take... So imagine your string length is like a meter. And then stretch the string out so it's like spanning... I don't know why I'm on an ice rink. It, friction doesn't matter, but in my head I'm on an ice rink because it's a <laughs> physics problem. So imagine you're on the ice rink and the string is like as big as possible to fit in the ice rink. And you still go around in a second. That ball is going to be moving real fast, right? Right. So now you got R and V both changing in a not straightforward way. Okay. So the the simpler way to think about it is the other form, instead of V squared over R, is omega squared R. Okay. Does that ring a bell? Uh, Instead of V squared over R, you have omega squared times R. And you can work those out going between them with V equals R omega. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah? Yep. So you got, I'm imagining like a Newton's... Um, second law thing with the force being the tension in the string, which I'm asking about now. So which is the higher tension, a short a, a short string, in, in other words, a small circle or a long string, a large circle? And you have the tension equal to MA. The only force is tension working right. in the, the radial direction of the circle. So that's equal to MA. And then we said A was equal to omega squared R. Right. Or if you wanted to, you could work it out with V squared over R, but just be careful. You're going to have to convert anyway. Right. Well, yeah, because omega, omega is the angular velocity, and right. we're saying that's constant. It's exactly. one second to go 360 degrees. Yep. So, and and if if we want to go between time, meaning the period, and omega, we got to use omega equals 2 pi over the period. But that doesn't really matter because the key thing is that omega and the period are both constant. Right. That was my whole big hint. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Omega is fixed and we have T tension equals M omega squared, which are both constants, right. times R. R. So, okay. Yeah. So, the larger one then. Yep. Tension okay. is proportional to the radius in this example, right? Yes. So, if it's a short string, a small circle close to you as you spin around, you're going to have a lower tension than if it was a long string and you're spinning around in the same amount of time, that string is going to be pretty taut because you got to get that ball around the circle in the same amount of time, but it's got a much larger distance to cover. Right. Okay. Good so far? Yep. Okay. So close, weak string, far, strong string. Right. Okay. If gravity was like the tension in the string and that we could adjust it to be whatever we wanted, if we wanted an orbit that was geosynchronous, meaning it took 24 hours to spin around and we could adjust the strength of whatever force was causing the satellite to go around in a circle, perfect. We could we could bring it into a tight circle right above the earth, you know, swinging past the space station in 24 hours. Mm-hmm. The problem is we don't have a string connecting the satellites, keeping them spinning in a circle. We have gravity, which behaves not like a string. We can't adjust gravity to whatever we want. Right. So uh, again, to recap, tension is low when the string is short and high when the string is long. Right. So how about gravity now? Is gravity when you're closer? So now imagine orbits around the Earth. Is gravity stronger when you're close or stronger when you're far? Uh, it's stronger when you're close. Yep. Right. So we got the, the inverse square law for gravity. So it says if you're close, gravity is going to be strong. You know, the two objects attract each other if they're closer together. Right. And if they're far away, the gravity force between them is going to be pretty weak. So we have these two kind of opposing, I guess, or, or I guess contradictory ways of thinking about spinning in a circle. With the string, we could adjust the force to whatever we need to get a circle to happen at a particular amount of time. But for gravity, we don't really. And gravity is the opposite. If we're, if we're too close, 
gravity's too strong. It's stronger than the string tension that's required to keep it spinning in a circle. Right. And, and if we're too far, gravity's too weak to keep that satellite spinning in a circle at right. the fixed time. So if it's we're too close, it's too weak, mm-hmm. and we're just going to fall and hit the ground. Or sorry, too close, it's too strong. Sorry, she said right. the opposite. If we're yeah. too, too close, it's too strong. Gravity is we're just going to fall and hit the ground. Right. If it's yep. too weak, like really weak, we're just not going to orbit at all. We're just going to go off on our merry way. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, nothing's going to, you know, we're not going to have an orbit. Right. And then in between there are actually two states. There's the circular orbit and the elliptical orbit, but we'll just focus on the circular. Yeah, stick in the circle. Yep. So there's a kind of like Goldilocks perfect distance where gravity is just the right strength, meaning if you adjust the tension in a string and you had some ball spinning around 24, taking 24 hours to spin around, the distance where gravity equals the tension in that string is going to be at that 35,000 kilometers height above the surface of the earth. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So, so what's so what's wrong with your analogies? What I we're, don't know. You're asking. Uh, <laughs> and maybe I, it's too convoluted. Like, why did I have to introduce another force that didn't really explain the first force? It just kind of put a different mental picture in your head. I thought it. I don't know that it explained it, but it was fun to think about and like go through it. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm following. I think it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, at least it makes sense to me. When, I added a little bit, and I said. If 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 the string was as strong as gravity is when the the satellite is closer, like if you pulled harder on the thing, yeah, like you said, you'd crash to the earth. And I I, I think it, it, if you're trying to keep it spinning in a circle, it wouldn't go into elliptical orbit. I didn't get into any of that. I think I said it would it would spiral into the earth because it's trying to move around a fixed amount of time, but the force is too strong, so it's kind of like spiraling into the earth. Right. And then if it's too weak, it would spiral out away from the earth. Like it would still try and go in that circle, but it's just not strong enough to keep it moving in the circle. So it would, it would kind of start to, your string is too weak. You start like getting slack in the string and it's like pulling out the string as the ball moves further and further from you because you're not pulling hard enough. There's also another orbit, if you will, that we didn't mention. I just want to make sure we're, we cover everything. Mm -hmm. There's hyperbolic orbits too, right? I don't know. Uh, the details off the top of my head, but hyperbolic is when you're moving too fast and you're not actually bound to the planet. So okay. you're 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 coming in too hot and you're just gonna like slingshot away from the planet. Right. Okay. The hyper the if you look from above, ooh, now I don't remember my basic geometry. Whatever the the little point is, is it the focus? I know it's that for parabola. I think it's the focus. Yeah. For the hyperbola. Yeah. Yeah. So the planet would be at the focus of the hyperbola and the the orbit quote unquote, um, the hyperbolic path is like swinging back behind it. That's your little hyperbola. Okay. Yeah. So I think, so here's what, here's the thing I kind of thought of as you were explaining your, uh, analogy that you can either tell me if you think this will make it easier or worse, Mm -hmm. but have you ever, have you ever had one of those, uh, like janitorial key rings where it's like Mm. you clip it on your belt and you, and it unlocks the door and you like going, Oh yeah. Back to your thing. Yeah. Have you ever spun the keys around on one of those? Um, I don't know what you mean. Like, I'm imagining like a... Like you a, let out a, some a, amount a of a guy in line. a zoot suit and he's like leaning up against the wall and kind of spinning his chain or something. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Except, you <laughs> okay. know, it's one, it, it's one of those retracting key rings. Okay. That sucks it back. Mm-hmm. It, and so, yeah. Have you have you ever spun that thing? Like you have the, the retractable 
part in your, in your hand, hand and it's yeah. able to stretch and and retract freely but you keep it spinning in a circle yeah i can imagine that i've never yeah. done it but i can imagine it yeah <laughs> it so, sounds pretty fun <laughs> so yeah it, it's i i have one of those on my person every day so i, I do this when i get bored um <laughs> but i think this is actually uh, almost exactly kind of what's happening is you know take the exact scenario that you've you've said you know and it might not be mathematically equivalent but you know, to, to get a more, better intuition, I think it might be a little better, is replace the string with a T with a spring with a P. Hmm. Yeah. Because then, then when, you, when you spin the, you know, when you spin the spring, and you, if you want it to be a certain distance away, you have to spin it at a certain speed. Uh-huh. I, I don't know if anyone's done this. I've, I've done it. That's why yeah. like, it's so intuitive for me. So um, you reminded me of something from my classical mechanics class. Like, I don't remember if it was like upper division, like junior, senior level classical mechanics, like not the intro, but right. we, we worked out orbits. And I remember if, if you had some force that went with some power law, like, like R to the N, like any power, um, there's two situations where you're, you get closed orbits, closed paths. And I might be saying this wrong because it's been a really long time since I've done any of this kind of stuff. And what I don't remember if it was closed in real space, like, like spatial dimensionally closed, like a circular orbit is closed, like it ends up where it started. Mm-hmm. Or if it was a closed path in phase space, which is like plotting position versus momentum. I, I don't remember what closed meant in this case, but... It could only be closed in a inverse square law and a linear force. So only in like um, gravity or a spring, like a Hooke's law force, which is linear with distance. So I, I don't know. <laughs> that reminded me of that. Is right. like you can get a closed orbit with gravity or a spring. And again, I could be totally wrong on the details of that, but I thought that was an interesting fact when we learned it. Um, something to look up. Exercise yeah. for the listener. Yeah, or... Uh, more explanation for us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But. Oh, the keyword you want to look up and I'm going to say it and not be able to spell it. So it might not be any help is Lisa Ju curve. Oh yeah. Lisa, Lisa Ju. Yeah. Those are fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I mean, cause the, the thing, the problem with a string, I feel like is, uh, tension is set by the mass of the object. Mm hmm. At, you know, at, at a given radius, uh, fixed radius, by the mass of the object and the the period or the, you know the angular speed, right? And so, changing what, what am I trying to say? Changing the the, the reason. Uh, uh, then I'm trying to think about your analogy. The changing the tension in the spring, like like gravity changing, seems like a strange concept. Or am I missing something? Because um, because the I guess I guess my whole point was ignore the string. Okay. In Newton's second law for an object in circular orbit, you have gravity on one side of your F equals MA. So the F part is gravity. Right. Which goes like one over R squared. Uh-huh. On the right side, you have MA, which ends up being M omega squared R. So right. on the left, you have something that's proportional to one over R squared. On the right side, you have something that's proportional to R itself. And if you plotted those two plots, like a one over R curve and an, an R curve, they intersect at one point and that's your circular orbit. That's your geosynchronous orbit for a fixed period. 
And so I was using the tension as kind of like the catch-all for everything on the right side, the M omega squared R, just to say like all of this is some term, call it whatever you right. want. Say Y equals M omega squared R, and then say Y equals GMM over R squared. And then the place where those two things intersect, plotting both of those Y equals equations, that's your circular orbit. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I mean, I don't see an issue with your uh, <laughs> analogy. I wasn't um, wrong. I just maybe overcomplicated it. Just yeah, yeah. Why um, I got the down votes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I haven't spent much time on the, uh, presumably the physics subreddit or that science subreddit. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know how uh, pretentious that crew is. <laughs> I, I, so I have like multi subs where you just like group a bunch of them together, you know, oh, like, uh, and I just go in there and I don't even, I don't even know what subreddit it is really when I'm looking at stuff or posting. Cause I just see the topics. I mean, yeah, obviously right. it looks different, but I don't really pay attention to which one I'm in. Right. Uh, but yeah, I guess, I guess for me, yeah, the, the thing that seemed more intuitive was a, was a spring since it does have kind of a set force. Yeah. Uh, like it is okay. So I guess that's what I'm trying to say is the difference between like a string and a spring. God, mm -hmm. that's an awful, um, <laughs> is that the, the, the spring, the amount of force from a spring is changing with, with the stretching or compression of the spring, where, whereas the string, it's not related to that. Right. And so that, 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 I guess that was, that's the only non-intuitive part of your description, but following it, Along, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I can follow each step of the way, and I understand exactly what you're saying. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that it's wrong in any ways. I mean, especially when the the tension part of it was just to get you in the state of mind to deliver the the final thing, which I think was you know the right answer, anyways. So right, like, right. Like you could just started with that, and yeah. it would have been right. Yeah, uh, there's. It wasn't like a popular thread. I don't even know why I'm dwelling on it so much. Yeah. It's just kind of a funny like motivation to talk about this topic. That's I, I think it's kind of interesting. But yeah, the other people were like, just went straight into like the equations. I'm like, cool. That doesn't really explain why. Like, <laughs> it's because it's a one over r squared force. Cool. What does that mean? Yeah, yeah. So. It, it's it's a balancing act between distance and speed to some degree. Mm -hmm. Is kind of you know how I, I I see it, and it's only you know e each orbit in order to meet that balance has one point for it to be a circular orbit. Right. So what's interesting is I'm thinking about, huh? So I'm, I'm thinking of replacing the, the, I'm going to say rope instead of string because it's easier. To, oh, there we <laughs> to go. Okay, rope. I'm going to replace rope, the tension with a spring, like you were saying. Okay. But think of what that equation says. It says the spring force, which is if we're using R for the distance, the spring is stretched. Okay. It's saying K times R, the spring force, equals M omega squared R, right? Yeah. So R drops out of that equation. If we wanted to find, like, in, in the other case, we could solve for R because R was in the equation at the end, right? You could find what that distance is, plug in your omega, then you got your R, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. But in the spring case, we don't. There is no R. But I, I see what it's saying, though. It's saying that your spring has to have a particular spring constant in order to be a circular orbit at that omega. Yeah. That's interesting. There's no distance requirement. There's only a spring constant requirement. Is that true? That seems not correct. I guess it's true. Yeah, I mean, because with tension, t tension, you're just saying, we're just saying with the rope that it's it's 
tension, some force. Mm-hmm. We haven't like gone into what that force is. You know, right? We just said it's a force. Whereas now with the spring, we could also just say, "Oh, it's a force." Yeah. But well, then now, what, now we've said, "Okay, well, okay, this we can describe this force via kr or kx." Or yeah, I guess what I was getting at was with gravity, you could solve for a particular r, which I guess. So here's the answer to the question: Gravity, you solve for one particular value for r that defines the orbit at that particular omega or period. You know, whatever you want to think about, mm-hmm. right? The equation gives you one value for r. For the string, you can put any value of r because you can adjust the tension to whatever you want. So there is no geosynchronous orbit for if the force was a string because you, it would just adjust. Like we said, you spin around with a short circle in 24 hours, it's going to be whatever tension it needs to be, and it's not very large. And then if it's a really big circle, spin around in 24 hours, you're going to have a larger a larger tension. So you can have a circular orbit that takes 24 hours to go around at any radial distance if your force was a string. But what about a spring? Is there a particular distance or can it be any distance? Or is it only dependent on the spring constant being correct? And the second you have the correct spring constant, then you can have it at any radius. Is that true? I want to make a ball on the end of a spring spin around me in one second. Do I need a particular spring to do that? Or can I do it with any spring? And well, if I have the right spring, can I make it at any radial distance? Right. Okay. So I think, yeah, I think if it's a, uh, yeah, I, th- I think if you have K equal M omega squared, mm-hmm. then it's it's going to be any distance. I think that's true. The, well, first of all, the math just straight up says it's true, but I'm trying to like intuit, like, is that actually true? Right. Okay. Well, all right. So if you imagine, let's say we have like, let's see if we can compare like a really, really weak spring mm-hmm. to like a really strong spring. Yeah. Um, I was trying to do that in my head. I kind of like your little retractable string thing better for the model because I tried like a, like a car's shock absorber spring is my go-to of like a really high spring right. constant spring, but that's like already a fixed distance. Yeah, that's like a, a, pretty much a rod unless we start moving right crazy speeds. Yeah, um, or we have a really big mass, I guess. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I'm trying to imagine just like like a trampoline spring okay. versus you know like one of those conical springs that we use for the simple harmonic <laughs> oscillator, yeah, like a slinky. Yeah, a slinky. There you go. That's even better. Yeah, everyone knows a slinky. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All right, what are we what are we asking? <laughs> I have to get back to that. Is can we if if the spring constant is correct, we agree that there like, the math says that a spring constant needs to be equal to m omega squared. We want to we want to again fix omega. Omega is constant. Mm-hmm. And I guess mass is constant. I didn't really think about that with gravity or the string, but let's just make it so. <laughs> so we have the proper spring with the proper k value to get this thing to spin around in a particular omega. Right. So does that mean that we, with that spring, we can have a circular orbit at any distance? So say the slinky is correct. I think it's true. And and it's right. Whatever period and mass we have, the, the slinky is the right spring constant to get this thing to go around us in a circular orbit. And and we put them, we stretch the, string, the slinky out to a foot and we spin around in our time, however much time that is, one second. And then it stays in a circular orbit. We can go around and around in a circle once every second, and that slinky is going to stay exactly the same length. If we then stretch the slinky out to, I don't know, five feet, stretch it, and then go around in the circle once every second, is the slinky going to stay five feet long? 
I, I think it is. Mm-hmm. 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 Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just realized something and... If any of my students are listening, maybe they caught this because I would always hammer it in their heads. <laughs> Do you want to finish your thought? Sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> so, okay, let's let's ignore circular orbits. But you know, whenever we teach springs and simple harmonic motion, we draw parallels to circular motion because a lot of the equations look similar. And we do the little demo with something spinning in a circle, and we shine a flashlight on it, and we show the shadow, and it looks like a mask going back and forth on a spring, right? Cool. Now, from simple harmonic motion, we know what does the period definitely not depend on? Um, depends on mass. For a mass on a spring, yeah. Skirt, yeah, yeah. That's your omega. But what's not in that equation? Yep, the amplitude of the simple harmonic motion, right? That doesn't affect how long it takes to go back and forth on the mass on the spring. So, I mean, going backwards from the comparison where we say, oh, it's just like some circular motion because we already studied that usually in the order we teach it. Going backwards, then it's the same thing. It's in any radius, you can have something spinning in a circle. I know it's not exactly the true, exactly the same, but at least there's <laughs> a connection to be made that it's amplitude independent, which means... Instead of simple harmonic motion, we have uniform circular motion. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, so it's kind of, we're working at it from a weird angle of saying fix omega and m, and then we find our k, and then we get the k spring constant to be correct for whatever we need the period to be, and then we're good. So yeah, it, I think I think what I was saying, if you stretch it a foot, spin in a circle once every second, it's going to stay a foot. Stretch it five feet, spin in a circle once every second, it's going to stay five feet. Interesting. Geostationary or geosynchronous. Yeah. Mm hmm. Right. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Right. 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 Hmm. Yeah, well, that was fun. I got one more puzzle, and it's a quick one. Okay. I, right. I meant to use it as an intro, but I forgot. Okay, <laughs> Do you want to hear it? Yeah. <laughs> um, somebody asked, and I had to think about it a little bit. I didn't reply, but I did read somebody ask, why can't the escape speed be one mile an hour? Like, if, if you just had a rocket that you hit cruise control on and said, always make me go one mile an hour, why can't that just leap? Like, why is our escape speed so high? Like, why can't we just leave at one mile an hour? Right. So it's like, okay, in a world where there's only the Earth and, yeah, we have an infinite source of energy on this rocket, we send mm-hmm. it away at one mile an hour. It doesn't matter how long we wait, whether it be, you know, if, if we wait 10 seconds, it seems obvious, okay, it's going to fall back down to the Earth. But if we waited a thousand years, you know, so now it's, God, I don't know how many hours are in a year, <laughs> um, but stupid far away from the earth. And then we said, okay, turn off the thing. It's still going to fall back to earth at some point. Like the, the we'll, we'll Is stop. It? Yeah. I, right. I don't, I don't think so. Cause it took me a second to think about that. And I went where you're going, but I eventually came to a different reasoning and it's it's kind of a it's not a tricky question but the way it's worded like i wouldn't ask a student this question because it's it it's kind of plays a trick on you okay well yeah so can you you can you even accelerate or not accelerate but can you can you move at a constant velocity of one mile an hour straight up from the earth i don't i don't know (laughs) but it didn't ask could you it just said I mean, it's physically possible to. It's not like breaking the laws of physics to do it. But could you build something to do it? I don't know. Probably not. It'd be pretty hard. Right. Well, okay. <laughs> maybe like maybe a space elevator. So I'm going to give you the the hint unless you think you got something. No. I, yeah. I mean, I, I'm still at the, the point where my... So you think if you, if you were, you know, light years away from Earth and this thing was cruising at one mile an hour and you turned off the engines, it would fall back to Earth. I mean, that's what I, I've been told I've learned in <laughs> physics is, yeah, yeah, provided, you know, there's no other planets or anything in the system. It's just these two things. But it's moving one mile an hour. It's not at rest. I agree. If things are at rest, like if things are stopped infinitely far away, you know, the like force of gravity extends infinitely far. If something is stopped and the only object in the universe is the Earth, wait long enough, those two things are going to collide. Okay, all right. So let's maybe maybe what I need to do is review. Okay, an escape velocity mm-hmm. is the velocity it takes for something to leave Earth and never return back to its orbit. That's right. So, okay. All right. So let, let me see if I can, I can talk through this for a second. This is where I was kind of... My, my question about the one mile per hour, hour thing was, was coming into my head that was bothering me. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I feel like it's an engineering uh, answer. But um, <laughs> so, yeah, if, if I threw a ball at one mile an hour straight up, mm-hmm. Earth's pulling on it and, and dragging it back down, it's not going to escape. If I threw it at, what is it, like 8.6 kilometers per second or something? What, what's it's the, something like that, yeah. On Earth, uh, a speed of 11.2 kilometers per second. That's the escape speed? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. Then then if I threw a ball at 11.2 kilometers per second, it's never coming back. That's right. Okay. But now if we talk about something moving at a, a constant velocity of one mile per second, there's some engineering solution to this. It's a rocket that's mm-hmm. that's canceling out the force of gravity the whole time. Right. 
so yeah, yeah. So it it is just going to move indefinitely. It could move away from Earth. Yep. Indefinitely. If right. it would but yeah, if you turned it off, then the force of gravity is still gonna suck it back at some point. Even like wait years, like it's light years away. Yeah, turn. if you if you turn it off at that point. See, that's where I disagree. I don't think so. So okay, is that cause let me think. Okay, so now all right, all right. Now okay, so the, the escape velocity depends on where you are in a gravitational well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, okay, if I'm light years away, at some point, the escape velocity is going to be one mile per hour. Yep, exactly. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Yeah, because so, uh, <laughs> yeah, now I'm just in a really weak gravitational... The other way to think about it is, you know, I could be on a, uh, oh God, what is a, a yoga ball-sized planet mm-hmm. and throw a ball at one mile an hour, and it's going to escape. Yep, some some rocky formation somewhere in the universe has yeah. an escape velocity of one mile an hour on its surface. And that's the key thing is the escape speed is determined by the distance from the center. So we talk about it in terms of the surface of the Earth, which is a fixed distance from the center, essentially. So the escape speed of Earth is 11, whatever, kilometers a second to leave the surface. And this is the thing that tripped me up is understanding the escape speed is like, imagine like a quick impulse. Like it's just like this thing goes from zero to that speed and then no more forces. Like it just, it's off and then it'll leave. Like you said, like throwing a ball or like hitting a golf ball or in rocket science, you know, they consider the rocket, even though it lasts for a while, it burns for a while, they consider it like an impulse. Like it's not on the whole time the rocket's flying. Right. They eventually want a rocket to turn off. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the, that's, if you do that, you have to reach a certain speed from the surface of the earth. If you were launching from, you know, from the International Space Station, you were launching another object, you're, you have a smaller potential energy that you have to outdo. Mm-hmm. Because you're further away from the surface of the Earth or the the center of the Earth, really. So, yeah. So then the escape velocity from that point is less and it just keeps getting less and less as you you go. Right, right. Yeah. So at some point, you know, imagine the Earth, same mass, but an Earth that's the size light years radius or something like that. A huge Earth, but the same mass. At some point, the size of the Earth gets to the point where the force of gravity pulling from the center of this light year radius planet is weak enough that you could jump off at one mile an hour and leave. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So that, so, that was a kind of weird question that tripped me up for a second. I was like, wait a second. Why can't we do that? Why is the escape speed what it is? Why isn't it any speed? You can just escape. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you, if you keep adding, you know, you keep a constant velocity, you can escape whenever you want. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, provided you give enough time. Right. Right. <laughs> it's also funny to imagine a little rocket ship going one mile an hour yeah. like, and just going on forever. <laughs> so to finish up with some fun facts, um, you said the space station, the gravity is weaker. Yes. And, you know, your, your escape velocity, if you launched, if you launched something from the space station would be less because there's less gravity, less the weaker force of gravity. Yes. It's so this is a fun thing I used to talk about with students. So it's weaker, but it's not that much weaker. Like the, the people are weightless, quote unquote, not because there's no gravity. Because they're falling. They're falling, right. The whole spaceship is in free fall around the Earth orbiting right. in a circle. So the space station is pretty darn close. And the fun fact is that as the, as the space station passes over Sacramento, California... The space station is closer to Sacramento than the Pacific Ocean. Wow. <laughs> it's pretty close. It's like, yeah, not that far, like 100 miles or something. <laughs> that is pretty cool. Wow. Yeah, which really just like shows you like how 
how close we really are. Mm-hmm. You know, in that, but then it's also also like at some point is so mind boggling that we put someone on the moon at the same time, right. you know, like, yeah, yeah. The, the comparison, if you do like proportionalities with the globe, that's like picture a globe, the size of a basketball, like a normal globe, I guess that's a little bit bigger than a basketball, but you know, if the earth was the size of a basketball, how far would the moon be? Uh, God, I have no idea. Like, guess, um, like, is it, is it like across the bed? If the, I'm, I'm looking at my bed, so I'm right. trying to find things like, is it like globe on one side of the bed? moon on the other side of the bed Man, it's okay like, uh, across uh, well, your laptop I mean, yeah or, if i had to guess you know just just into it a distance mm-hmm. maybe across the house yeah Is yeah that, it's, it's 30 feet between the the globe and the the model moon if the earth was the size of a basketball 30 feet which is pretty far i don't know if it's across the house but you know yeah that's three stories up yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, three stories out. That's yeah. what gives you really good. <laughs> it's the moon is far. <laughs> yeah, and okay. So then, in that same relative system, where is ISS? Yeah. So the space station is basically put your thumb on the globe, and your thumb is on Sacramento, and the back of your thumb, the thumbnail is where the space station is. Right. <laughs> it's Jeez. like an inch yeah. above the globe. That's insane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. God. Yeah. And you, you could fit every planet inside the distance between the Earth and the Moon. Like yeah, Jupiter, Saturn, that. all of them. Yeah, there's that good picture online. Yeah. And it's <laughs> it's not just every planet. It's, yeah. it's Saturn and its rings. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. I actually would have thought not that, but that's crazy. I'm pretty sure it's its rings too. <laughs> uh-huh. And there's still some room left over.